Welcome swimmers and swimmers. I'm today's host, Garrett McCaffrey. Our guest today is entering his 12th overall and 10th season as the combined team coach of the Owls of Kenyon College. He's won five CSCAA Division III Coach of the Year awards. He's won four team titles. He's had almost 50 individual champions. He's Jess Book, and this is the Swim Swam Podcast. Jess, thanks so much for making time for us today. Garrett, you're welcome. It's nice to meet you, spend time with you, and think about swimming with you. Absolutely. Let's uh, geek out a little bit. I kind of want to start with um, just how Division Three swimming has changed. You were a Division Three athlete um, uh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, and um, you know you were part of four championship teams. Um, you were a captain your senior year, so you have a really good feel for what it was like. And I'm just curious, you know, now that you've been a coach there for 12 years and obviously still part of the program before that, how have you seen division three change as a whole? It's been fun. It's been fun to be a part of. It's been fun to witness. Uh, I think swimming just nationally continues to get faster and faster and faster. And division three is no, is no exception to that. I think what's really changed though, is kind of the, the depth of division three. There's always been high end, top in swimming. There's some times, even on a record board from the early 2000s to the late 90s that are exceptional. But what's really changed in Division Three is now the breadth of the division. And so, for example, last year's qualifying time in the 53 for NCAAs was 20.2. That's fast. I mean, that's not messing around. There aren't a whole lot. There are many, but there are not a whole lot of high schoolers coming out of high school that are 20.2 or girls that are 23.2 in the 53. And so it's gotten really quick, which is really exciting. But I think the thing I'm most excited to see is how it's really kind of gone coast to coast. And Division Three swimming is a real legitimate place to swim. It's a real legitimate place to swim fast. It offers a very different kind of opportunity for certain student athletes. And I think that's the whole recruiting process, which we can talk about if you want to, but certain people are just a better fit for this type of environment. And it's fun to be able to provide them with a swimming experience that is top notch, that is world-class in many ways. Well, there's no doubt about it, not only coaching-wise, but facility-wise there at Kenyon. You guys have everything that a swimmer would want. What kind of student-athlete are you looking for in the recruiting process? I think that would be helpful for everybody to understand. That's a fun one, and it's so it's so institution-specific. And so I, I can only speak about Kenyon in this regard. There are other Division three schools that have different flavors to them. But I think when we think about someone who's going to be successful at Kenyon, it kind of starts with that idea that they want to be great both in the academic space and in the athletic space. And in a very, in a very uh, careful way, I, I don't think these two things have to take away from one another. I think there are lots of institutions where you're asked to prioritize one over the other or the opposite way, the other one over the other one. But at Kenyon, you really can pursue both at an extremely high level. And so I look for students that have both of those. But then beyond that, it's more of that kind of personality fit. It's the vibe. It's their curiosity. Kenyan students like to study many things. Uh, they tend to be curious about lots of parts of the world they live in. They tend to be people who major in more than one discipline. They tend to have interests outside of the water. And so a good Kenyan fit for me is a very curious person who loves many things. But swimming is definitely one of those, quote unquote, big rocks, something that kind of build their existence around. They build their happiness around. They build their their friendships around, but it's not the only thing. So does that mean that, you know, I don't want to call any swimmer high maintenance and we like mm -hmm. swimmers who are engaged in the process, but does that mean that your job's a little tougher because you either have to explain exactly why you want them to do something or even maybe open up mm -hmm. a little bit of a discussion as to what they think they want or need? Yeah, that's super perceptive. That's, that's dead on. That's exactly right. And so it is I say this is one of the things that we do very well, but it's also one of our great challenges. And so I think Kenyon really educates from kind of a collaborative standpoint, and we truly try to coach from a collaborative standpoint too. And so not everyone I coach wants to have that ongoing conversation about the nuances of why we do what we do and how they might tweak things to be better. But in general, they do. They want to know, as you said, the why. Why are we doing uh, aerobic base work today. Why does aerobic base work matter for everyone, whether you're a 50 freestyler or a 1650 freestyler? It looks different in both camps, but why does it matter? And why does speed work? And why does resistance work? Why does power work matter for the 1650? Same idea. They want to know why. And the good thing is they see it as learning. It's not, it's not um, questioning. It's not 
It's not confrontational. It's not doubting. It's just curiosity. Help me understand why. Help me understand why we're going to do shoots today. Help me understand why we're doing this particular drill today. Help me understand why today we're doing 10 300s on short rest, whatever it might be. And I think that those who approach that kind of questioning oftentimes get the most out of the experience because then they understand and then they're able to buy in at a higher level, which ultimately helps them at the end of the season. For sure. It makes a ton of sense. And in theory, you know, everybody would love to individualize practice for every single swimmer, but with, I'm assuming rosters around 50, what, how many people are on the roster? No, we're closer to 75. Wow. And so, so we, even yeah. tougher, right? Even tougher. Right. How, I mean, there has to be some parameters. There has to be a breakdown mm -hmm. as far as training right. groups um, or, you know, weekly cycles or something that allows you to have success. Cause you've, I mean, won championships in the full gamut of events. I mean, from the mm -hmm. 1650 to the 50 and everything in between the IMs, every stroke. Um, I mean, just in your last 12 years, you've won all of those. So, uh, you know, there is no specialty. You can't really hone in and say, Kenyon's really good at this because there's argument that you're mm -hmm. really good at everything. H how do you balance that? How, how do you break down season to give them the chance to really be curious about that width of events? Gary, uh, that's a great question. This is right where we are right now, too. And so one of the things I really enjoy doing is every summer as a coaching staff, we will sit down and we will reimagine the program. We'll look at where we've been successful in the past. We'll think about the tweaks we might want to make. We might think about uh, new coaches we have on staff and, and new curiosities or talents they have. But in general, what we do is we build a, it's almost like a training menu. Like we have five or six different training groups. We have a, what we call group one, which is a low volume sprint group. We have a group two, which is a higher volume sprint group. We have a middle distance group. We have a long IM group. We have a distance group. We have an underwater group. And so we create a schedule across the week that talks about how these different groups are training, what their focus is on each morning practice, each afternoon practice. And then that's step one, create the schedule. Step two is as coaches, we'll sit down with the roster and come up with a plan that we think will fit the student athlete. And for, for a few of them, they are, and I was one of these, they are, they are one trick ponies. They are all distance all the time. And that's who they are. That's a few of them, but many of them are hybrids. And so they'll spend part of the week with one group and part of the week with the other group. And when maybe they train middle distance, but they need to hit 500 pace and 500 pace day, but maybe they also really respond well to power work. And so they're going to do power tower and power rack. And so we create a plan that we think complements who they are as athletes, not just the events they swim. But from there, and you've already asked this, then we give that to them. And we say, this is the first draft. This is what we were thinking. Now, what do you think? And oftentimes their thoughts align pretty closely with ours. But I, I have been surprised, pleasantly surprised at times with people who have insights that are radically different. And I'm thinking about a, a power-based male swimmer I had a few years ago who felt like he really benefited from endurance-based work and wanted to swim with the distance swimmers in the fall. And every, every instinct to me was like, that's the wrong choice. That's the wrong choice. But he sold me on it and he did it and he really benefited from it. And so having that opportunity for that collaborative conversation is important. And so not everyone wants that. And that's okay too. Some people just want to be told, this is what you need to do. And they go and they do it. But for a lot of our swimmers, they want to have that, that opportunity for understanding and collaboration and feedback on the process. So I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into this because having very little experience with the college groups and those training groups, I know that sometimes, you know, athletes think they want something and then change their mind. And sometimes you have to find whether they're being, you know, uh, adaptable or reactive. And you kind of have to have that decision. Are there any rules or parameters when you say, some of the distance swimmers really benefit from power. Are they doing that within group three or do you have them go with group one for a day here or there? Um, I guess, what are the parameters that you can hold them accountable for within all of that freedom that you give them? Another great question. Um, it's, they have, in this particular example, they'd have the freedom to kind of train power with the middle distance swimmers. They're, they're probably not gonna jump all the way down to the sprinters partly because logistically just the schedules don't align. And so as we create this menu of options for the week, we create places of overlap for people to move between groups. But when groups are out of phase with one another, they, they can't really jump. They can't jump well from group five to group one. They just kind of operate in, in slightly different logistics. But uh, I think your question is still a good one. How do you, 
how do you know whether that suggestion they're making is for their betterment or not? And this is really, this is the, this is the art of coaching. This is what we do all day as coaches. And I think that coaching at its, my coaching at its highest level is when I'm listening. And so when I'm paying attention to what they're saying, even with the boy I gave as the example, every part of me said that was the wrong idea, but he really believed it. And we both know if the student really believes it, it's probably in their best interest. Like if they get in the season having done this wacky stuff, but they believe 100% in it, they're probably going to go lifetime best. And so I tend to err on the side of listening. I tend to err on the side of, of going with their instincts. Oftentimes I will massage it. They might come in and say, I want to do this. And I'll say, great, let's do that. But let's also do this too. And so it's not so much about making it their idea or my idea, it ends up being our idea, but it's usually built on their their thoughts and their feelings. All right, last kind of big picture question about how you're kind of breaking down your groups and your team. When you're building culture, there has to be some unity. There has to be some mm -hmm. togetherness within those individual plans that it sounds like you're doing an amazing job mm -hmm. of accommodating. Um, how do you ensure um, a group of team camaraderie or a, a feel of team camaraderie within the whole group as you try to break down and specialize for each individual? I, I like these questions, really. These are very good. So one thing that I'll say, and then I'll, this doesn't quite answer your question, but even if someone is a hybrid, I tell them they need to have a home. And so who's your home? Where do you identify with? Do you identify with group one? Do you identify with group two, group three, group four, group five? And so we will do kind of breakout conversations, meetings, team building events around our different groups, but you need to have a home too. And so you can be a jack of all trades, but you need to be able to say that I live in group four and I live in group two or whatever it might be. So that's part of it. Um, but I also, I believe very, very strongly in creating to the best of our ability, a, a one team mentality. Uh, and we are, we are a very co-ed team. And that's something I believe very strongly in. I think it's part of the uniqueness of swimming. I think it's part of preparing for life in this world. And so we are a very, very co-ed team. And so we do a lot of things that are at the macro team level. Um, those could be conversations. They could be team building events. Uh, last year, we went and played paintball as a team. It was awesome. I had a ton of fun doing it. Uh, maybe we'll do it again this year. But if you do the same thing over and over again, it loses some of its impact. But we're going to do those things too. And we talk about the umbrella of Kenyan swimming and diving is the most important thing. And under that umbrella, we have a men's team and a women's team. And under those umbrellas, we have group one, group two, group three, so on and so forth. But we got to understand the biggest picture thing is the team and how are we building a great team? And that starts like everything with getting to know one another. And so at the beginning of the year, our first few weeks, we're all swimming together. And I'm creating lane assignments. We're creating lane assignments that intentionally mix them up tremendously. Uh, training groups, genders, class years, hometowns, that kind of stuff to try to create uh, an understanding of one another. I think it's hard to care about people if you can't understand them and where they're from. So we try to build that up front too. So these are very fluid things. We, we have some things that we do year to year, but we also change things year to year just to do some stuff differently. But at the end of the day, we are one team and that's really important to me as well. And so we got to make sure that we're not, uh, I don't know, siloing ourselves or isolating ourselves. It, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good to me if we have a group that, that kind of lives on an Island. That's not what we're looking for. Awesome stuff. Um, and, you know, I could keep diving into details and I think we will kind of in this second part of our discussion, mm -hmm. but one of the other things we really wanted to get together to talk about um, is the induction of Jim Steen into mm -hmm. the Kenyan Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I we talked before we started recording about how Jim um, is arguably, or maybe even not arguably, the <laughs> best coach right. in NC2A history across all sports, all divisions. Right. And statistically, like you said, it's pretty tough to argue against 50 total team titles nobody's even close to that he had 29 men 21 women's team titles 171 individual champions and he was the 16 time coach of the year um you know i i feel like it, you've been there for 12 years you've been coaching on your own um and he retired 10 years ago um mm -hmm. i i didn't want this whole conversation to be you know all about him because i'm sure over the last 10 years you you've been asked 
very consistently about, you know, the shoes you're filling, the shadow, right. yada, yada, right. yada. Right. Um, I guess where I wanted to start is, do your swimmers now like know about gym or ask about gym at all? Uh, they do. They do. The pool's named after him. So first and foremost, um, the banners that hang in the pool demonstrate the history of success here. And so, yes, they, they do. Um, it's something that I think we can even do a better job of this, but I, I, I think that I want to honor the past, but I want to live in the present. And, and so juggling that duality is something that we have to be thoughtful about. And Coach Dean, uh, who's a mentor and someone I think extremely highly of, uh, care deeply about, uh, his, and we can talk about this if you want also, but kind of his, one of the things he does better than anyone I've ever met is his ability to focus in on things. When he goes all in on things, he goes all in on things. But when he's not all in on things, he's off on other things. And so for him as a former head coach here, he doesn't come back very often. He doesn't spend a lot of time on deck. He'll come back once or twice a year. Uh, he's well-informed when he comes back. He's done his research. He knows who to ask about and who to talk about. But his interests are elsewhere right now. And so part of what I'm really looking forward to this fall with our reunion event is connecting the past to the present. I feel like there's an appreciation, there's an understanding, there's a lot of uh, pride, but the connection isn't as strong as I believe it can be. And, and that's felt from both sides of the equation. That's our student athletes hungering to hear about these people who've done tremendous things in the program, but it's also our alumni who want to get to know our current team better. And so I'm very thankful that we're doing this. Uh, I think that this is it's a it's obviously a, a more than well-earned event, but it's it's more than just Coach Steen. And 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 I don't mean that in a, in a diminishing way. In fact, that's something he said to me over and over again. He doesn't really want an event, but it's important to bring us together and to honor the history of this program because it's such a tremendous history. And he has done something here at Kenyon College that no one else has done anywhere else in any capacity. And we should celebrate that. There's no doubt. And I mean, even if you look. Um, you know, you've won uh, four of those team titles, but uh, somebody who's yeah. part of his coaching tree has won all the others since he's right. left pretty much with Greg mm -hmm. Greeny at Denison. And then, um, mm -hmm. you know, John Howell at Emory. I, right. I feel like, you know, he's been such a huge impact on everyone across the board in mm -hmm. D3. It'll be interesting to see all those come together too for, mm -hmm. you know, celebration of him. Um, but when we do kind of break down and talk about him, because I, I mm -hmm. want to continue to talk about, you know, the whole overall impact and everything that he's mm -hmm. done, um, you know, what what do you tell your swimmers about him when you kind of talk about Coach Steen um, or they ask about Coach Steen? Is there anything that you kind of um, find yourself, you know, telling them consistently or is there any, you know, specific situations where you've had to tell a Jim Steen story recently? Is there anything you kind of give us some insight? Um, they haven't asked too much. Uh, I think, I, I don't know, Garrett, that's a good question too. I, I just, I, I'm as a human being, very good at living in the present. That's how I operate. That's again, a strength and a weakness at the same time. But uh, I don't, I don't look back too much. Back is behind me already. It do doesn't matter. What matters is right here, right now. What matters is our freshmen move in this week. What matters is our upperclassmen come back next week. What matters is our first team meeting. What matters is uh, the things that will make us great this year. And so I don't spend a lot of time looking backwards. Here's what, okay, here's a good answer for you. Here's where I do things differently. Uh, kind of my public conversation, team conversation is almost always about here and forward. But my individual conversations in the office are a lot more about the kind of the totality of the program. And so I'm much more likely to tell a Coach Steen story here in the office. I'm much more likely to talk about my own swimming experience here in the office. I'm much more likely to draw on the experience of my teammates and the people I've coached here in the office. But when I'm talking to the team, I'm talking about where we're going. I'm talking about what's next. I'm talking about how do we take who we are right now and become something better tomorrow. And I think they might really like those stories, but I also, this is who I am as a human being. This, and this is not a good reflection of it, but I'm not a very talkative person. And so for me, I, I'm also very attentive to their their schedules and their time commitments. And so I, I very much want to get in, get to work and finish and send them back up to do their academic work, which um, just just because it's fun to tell stories is absolutely not the way Coach Steen operated. Um, he was 
notorious for team meetings that would last 30, 40, an hour during practice. And we would be out, we would be dry, and then we'd have to get back in and go again. But that's that's not the way that I operate as a coach. So I don't tell a lot of stories is kind of the short answer to that question. Well, this might make the next few questions a little bit difficult, but I'm going to ask you to take a trip down memory lane mm -hmm. and not for the sake of your current conversations with swimmers, but just for the sake of some insight about coach steam. Like you said, he doesn't like the spotlight. He did not mm -hmm. want to come on and do any talk, but I think mm -hmm. we all kind of want to know more. I've, you know, mm -hmm. not had a chance to be on deck with him. I have never met him or interviewed him. I don't believe. And, you know, I kind of want some insight. So I'm going to ask some different phases because you've known him in a bunch of phases and I'm yep. assuming the first time that you met him, he was recruiting you? Uh, yeah, that's kind of a fun story, too, because I would say I was more recruiting Kenyon than he was recruiting me. Uh, I had identified this as a place that fit me really well. And so I I got my coaches at home to write letters of recommendation and send them to Coach Dean. So I was, I was really pushing that. But yes, the first time I met him was here on campus for a visit the fall of my senior year. Was there any difference between Coach Steen, the recruiter, and Coach Steen, the coach? No. Uh, again, that his ability to singularly focus on what's in front of him is incredible. And so when he was with the recruits, uh, the whole world melted away. When he was coaching the team, the whole world melted away. And so it, it was really about that was very consistent in both spaces. And so he liked he was better at this than I am. He liked telling stories and talking about where a particular recruit might fit in the pantheon of the program. Um, so he was very all in on those experiences. And then how about the difference between Coach Steen as a coach and as your boss, which for you know six years you were an assistant kind of mm -hmm. in the program. Um, did Did that change him in your eyes as that relationship kind of evolved? It didn't change him in my eyes. Uh, I, I was always a, I never thought I'd coach. So this was not something that I, I really planned my life around. I, as a student at Kenyon, I majored in English and biology. When I graduated, I taught for I taught English for a year. Um, and then I found my way back into coaching. But I, I had a, a good relationship with him as a student athlete, but I wouldn't say I had a close relationship with him uh, for no particular reason, just didn't. And so I got to know him obviously a lot better as an assistant coach, but he, and then part of you maybe was just the time of his life that I was here as an assistant coach. Uh, what he was very good at was letting me take ownership of things, uh, giving me certain things to do and just letting me go do them. And then afterwards giving me feedback on them. And so he wasn't micromanaging a lot from the coaching perspective. Um, he he let me do a lot of the detail work and he would do kind of the big picture vision type work. And so I, I enjoyed learning the big picture vision. I, I think one of the greatest gifts I got from him is how to just kind of manage data. He is incredible, uh, absolutely incredible in terms of what, the way he can take the world and put it into a spreadsheet and then make that spreadsheet something that not only tells a story, but is relatable to student athletes. So he's incredible at that. And so I, I learned a great deal about how to manage a program, manage a season, manage a team through Excel and through numbers. And that's something I really appreciated. But I, I certainly don't want to paint him as one-sided in that regard. He was also incredible in terms of team meetings, in terms of how to talk to and motivate and push student athletes to be their best. And, and he wasn't he wasn't afraid to be extremely positive and loving, but he also wasn't afraid to be direct and and uh, unhappy if if teams weren't doing well. And not often, but if the if the case if the case warranted it. Um, so my 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 relationship evolved, but um, I, I I'm not sure that it it didn't change the way I saw him. I think that he was still and has always been for me. He's always coach. Uh, there are people for whom when they refer to Coach Steen, they will tell him, call him Jim or they'll call him Coach Steen. For me, he's always coach. And that is who he was when I was a student athlete here. That's who he was when I was an assistant coach here. That's who he is now as head coach here. He is always coach. And so he continues to have that that position in my life. That's awesome ton of really good stuff that I want to dive into, but specifically, I want to talk a little bit more about these Excel sheets. Like what kind of data was he able to simplify into numbers on a spreadsheet? 
Well, he was one of the very first to to really use the the color system. I, I know John Urbanchek was doing doing that too. I don't know if they were doing it simultaneously or slightly gapped. I don't know, but he was looking at at work through the lens of of uh, energy systems and effort systems very early on. And so we've got the old training logs from the 70s and early 80s that doesn't really show up, but sort of in the early to the mid 80s, you start to see the appearance of, and I don't remember if this is the terminology he was using, but the AN1, the AN2, that kind of stuff. And so why was he doing this? He was doing this to better understand the success that his teams were having. And so he, at that point, had already won five, six, seven straight national championships. And he's curious, what are we doing that allows us to do this over and over again. And so let me take a practice log, a paper practice log, and let me put it into an Excel spreadsheet. Let me track the amount of yards we did that week, but let me further break it down into the amount of A and one, A and two, or what we eventually call white, pink, red effort level swimming. And in, in, in a one season snapshot, that doesn't tell you a lot. But once you start to layer that over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you can create trends. You can start to look for commonalities. You can say, um, let's say for him, for him, 1998 was an incredible sprinting year. It was an incredible sprinting year. All right, let's look back at the training plan from 1998 and see what did we do? Did we do anything differently that year? How did we handle power, track all the power rack work, track it separately too. And so you take all the things that you're doing in the water and you put them into a spreadsheet. Um, where again, he was really good, is really good, and he still does this, is then taking that spreadsheet, thinking about the relationship between items on the spreadsheet, creating formulas, looking at trends, but even color coding it. I know that sounds like a super simple idea, but it is, it's amazing how much better you can communicate information when you think about its visual appeal. And so even that, he was incredible at as well. So I've got... 30 years of training plans I can look back on, 30 years of training programs that I can go back and say, all right, what did we do on October 15th, 1986? I can probably find it and I can look at it and I can say that was a year, I just picked that year out of a hat, but that was a year where, uh, if I've got it right, uh, Jim Bourne finaled in the 53 at the Division One Championships uh, because that used to be a thing you could do. And so we could look back and see what did Jim Bourne do that year and think about how that could possibly play today. But that, that last statement is really important because the world is different and swimming is different and humans are different now than they were 20, 30 years ago. And so use it as an opportunity for learning, but not, not a, a boilerplate for how to do things right now. Again, great, great stuff and insight. And I think it kind of leads into the next element that he brought to the table as far as that, um, you know, coaching ability. And that's kind of the sports psychology of mm -hmm. it all. And you're right today, that's a common thing that's thrown around quite a bit, but, um, you know, back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, especially that was not something that was very common. Um, and even, you know, in your, in your generation there, you know, right there transitioning from the nineties to the two thousands, like how was he implementing psychology? Um, and what did that look like for you and your teams? I don't have a clean, clean and clear answer to that one either. I think that at its best, it's, it's relationships. It's being able to sit and talk to someone and listen to that person and offer other experiences, but really kind of shape, shape the conversation around where they are. Um, he's very, very good at that. I would not say trained at that other than the fact that his coaching trained him in that. Uh, you, you'll hear this a lot, but his alumni, and I would extend this to other coaches too, but his alumni were very good at seeing people individually. And so the messaging that might work for me is very different than the messaging that might work for a teammate of mine. Yeah, I, I don't know this to be true, but I can imagine a teammate of mine needing to be told, you need to get out there. You need to get after it. You need to win the first 500 of the 1650 in order to be in position to win the whole race. That kind of messaging would tear me apart. You know, I was, he told me this before one of my better swims. He told me it was a, a line from a song. I like a man with a slow hand. I like a man with an easy touch. And so to me, that was the idea that swim it, swim smooth, swim confident. You don't need to go out there and kill it. You just need to go out there and do it. And so that kind of individualized messaging, I think, is probably where 
he was at his best and probably where current coaches are at their best too. It's not, it's not scripted. It's not, all right, everyone needs to fill out this goal sheet and everyone needs to do this training program. And we all need to have a, a conversation about growth mindset. I mean, I think that stuff doesn't really make the impact at the end of the day. It's about thinking about what does that one person need to hear? Good stuff. Might ruin some of my questions about some Jim Steen quotes later, but that's okay. We'll get to that part. Um, another you can do thing, that too. <clears throat> another thing that he was an early adapter about um, with was visualization. Was that something you remember doing with him? It actually isn't. I, I don't remember doing that at all. Um, so either that happened before I was at Kenyon or I have amnesia and have no memory of it at all. Yeah. Or the New York Times article got it wrong, and that's okay too. That's fine. It could be true. Trying, that could be true. Trying to find some um, some insight. Um, how about this one? He created the power rack. This is yes, similar to the um, kind of the color system with John Urbanchek, but uh, it was happening in multiple places. But he was one person that was doing it at the outset, and so he worked with uh, a childhood friend of his from Mansfield, Ohio. That's where he grew up. Um, so total performance, Sam Van Cura, if you know Sam, but Sam and Coach Steen worked together to develop this tool in the, uh, I would guess, mid 80s. Uh, I actually don't have that in my head, but sometime in the mid 80s. And so this was something that he was thinking about. He worked with a friend on and they started a company. Sam is the one who currently operates it, but uh, created Power Axe and then those the towers and uh, Power Reel was even around for a while. So those tools were available and he really this also speaks to his, his data collection. He got really excited about tracking all that work. And so let's create a program of power rack that looks like this. Let's run a bunch of people through it. Let's see what it looks like on the other side and let's make adjustments. Let's do it again and see what it looks like on the other side. So yeah, I would say that he, uh, it was a very early inventor adopter. Uh, whether he is the one, I, I don't know that for sure. Do you remember any specific sets that he was doing on those racks or any that you did as far as resistance work? Um you know, the, the earlier, the better, as far as, you know, kind of what that work looked like. Yeah, I, I do. I, I was a distance swimmer, so I did not do it. So this is not from personal experience, but uh, I think pretty classically early on, it was sort of pyramiding number of reps on relatively long rest. So uh, four reps on a minute, then it was session two, six reps on a minute, then eight reps, then 10, then 12, then 14. And so just kind of a increasing number of reps on a minute, tracking both the weight and the time. And I'll talk about that in a second. And as you're moving towards taper, you're, you're dropping, you're dropping reps as you go. And so that was the earliest form of it. Uh, it did tweak a little bit over time, right? As he was ending 2012 was his last year coaching the men's team. That is correct. Uh, that was also an incredible sprinting year for our men's team. Still has a national record in the 200 free relay, 118.0, still has a national record in the 400 free relay, 253 in change. Um, we got very close to both those last year, but um, at that time, it was doing sets of four efforts on short rest. So the opposite of what he did early on, four efforts on short rest. So uh, four efforts on 20 seconds, 21 seconds, basically just long enough to sprint out, swim in, get your time, catch your breath, go again. Uh, so four efforts on short rest break and then doing that multiple rounds. And so what that was probably, if I were to look at these two things now, I would say that that what we were doing, those four efforts on short rest was really more uh, speed endurance. So what we're really working is the hundred in many ways, but the longer rest efforts, I probably wouldn't get all the way up to 12 myself, but the longer rest efforts are more about pure speed, pure explosiveness. And so he, he did kind of move through different things at different times. Cause just super curious. Just, I know X works, but what about Y? Is Y going to work better? Let's try Y. Let's see if that works out there, out there too. And I think Eric, you had another question inside of that that I've forgotten. What'd you ask? Oh, I guess I was just, you know, I guess I was just kind of asking how he used it. And then I'm curious also how, you know, that impacts how you're using resistance work today. Thank you. Yeah, we, we are always thinking about new ways to do it too. So we are evolving in our work. Oh, I, I know what I meant to go back to. So what he also did was created what he termed the power ratio. 
And so that is the a calculation of the amount of weight over the time that you are swimming. And so as you are modulating weight over the course of a season, you are trying to increase your power ratio. It's not just, I think this is the mistake some, some very new coaches to power rack might make. It's not just how much weight you can carry. It's how much weight you can carry fast. And so putting the full stack of, let's make this up, a full stack of 110 pounds, if it takes you 12 seconds to do it, you haven't gotten better at sprinting by doing that. And so it's understanding that there is sort of an ideal, maybe time window of effort. Uh, racks go about 12 and a half yards, but maybe four to five seconds of effort. And so how much weight can you carry in four to five seconds of effort? And so you're adding weight over the course of the season and perhaps dropping weight as you get to sprinting. So that was something that he also was a, a, a proponent of, maybe an early adopter, I don't know. Uh, but we we continue to do that too. We want to track the work. I think done well, it's not just do the work, it's track the work, which is hard, super hard. It's very time consuming, but we try to do that. And we are admittedly better at tracking the work with our sprint-based athletes than we are with our endurance-based athletes. We're not as good at tracking the work with them. It's a lot more work to track on that side. Mm -hmm. um, uh, actually, to be clear though, I mean, the endurance-based athletes on power rack. Got it. on power tower. So when endurance space athletes are doing the resistance work, we have not been great at tracking that, but when our sprint based athletes are doing resistance work, we are very good at tracking that. Got it. Got it. But those distance swimmers are still doing some of that resistance work. Yeah. Consistently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not the beginning of the season, but uh, once we're into it. Yeah. Once or twice a week, depending on who they are. Awesome. All right. Um, I think, you know, we've kind of talked about um, a lot of the things I wanted to go over. Uh, the only questions I kind of wanted to finish out with are, mm -hmm. you know, any untold stories. If you had, you know, a group at this reunion um, that you wanted, you guys just got to talking or if you were even going to get up and, and talk on the microphone in front of the group for a little bit. If there are any untold stories that you can give us now that maybe won't ruin your <laughs> your speech then or anything. I don't mind if I ruin it. Kind of go back that you you remember um, about Coach Steen or a situation that really stands out. Well, I told one yesterday. Someone was interviewing us for a video we're doing for the event yesterday, and I don't, I don't mind telling the same story right now. But um, we tend to tell the stories that are the funny ones, right? We tend to tell the ones that are a little bit outlandish, a little bit outrageous. It's not it's not so much the remember that one day we did. 2000 yards on 105 base. I mean, I, I, we tend not to tell those stories, even though those are fun stories. We tend to tell the stories where, uh, where coaching kind of occupies this mad professor kind of role. And that's, that's kind of where we see him. But the one I was telling yesterday was, uh, I think I told it my story yesterday is either my freshman or sophomore year at NCAAs, but now I think it might be my senior year. It doesn't really matter. So right at NCAAs, one of those years, and we were out for the pre-meet team dinner. So we got there on a Tuesday. We're going to compete on a Thursday. We're having dinner Tuesday night. Uh, I think it was in Buffalo, New York. So I think that was my senior year. But we went out to this restaurant. We all had dinner at the restaurant. We went back to the parking lot. We got in the vans and we had several little vans and coaches were driving them. I was in Coach Steen's van. And so we are pulling up the little gate where you pay your parking and, and you head off. And this is a classic coach. So he, he turns to the gate attendant or turns to the gate, no gate attendant, turns to the gate swipes his credit card, the arm of the gate moves up. As the arm moves up, he turns around to talk to all the, the swimmers behind him and tell them how, how important it was that we we're going to do and how exciting it was we we're going to do. And so he, he, he gets lost in this conversation behind him. He turns back around as the gate was coming down for the parking space, and he just went straight through it. He had no, uh, the way I tell the story, the way I remember the story, which could also be faulty, he, it's like he didn't even see it. Like he had no awareness that the gate was even there. It was just, it was just something he had to do to get where he was going. And so the to make a to make a metaphor out of it, to me, it's a it's a reflection of his ability to be all in on who he's with and what he's doing. And so for him, he paid the money to get the gate arm to come up. And because he paid it, that was gone. You know, that was way, that was in the past. That was in the far, far past. Now it's just about the people in the van and getting ready for NCAAs. And so that's something that kind of typifies him as a, as a coach as well. Uh, I have some other stories in my mind, but I feel like, I feel like sometimes I tell those silly stories too much. And I think they lose track of all the really incredible things that he did for us 
as human beings, as team members and things like that. The, the deep empathy he has for people when they're hurting, uh, the support he has for them. And I think those stories are the harder stories to tell. They're not the ones that we sit around the, the proverbial campfire and tell, but I think those are the ones that really make him who he was. Is. Do you have any examples of those without giving away, you know, names or, you know, putting anybody out there? Is there any example of how he was able to, you know, really treat his athletes like people? I know that I'm that's an individual one. base and it's tough to know those, you know, conversations that are happening, you know, just in between two people or whatnot, because that's usually a big place where empathy happens. But if you have any examples, I'd love to hear those stories. I have, I have two that are in my mind right now. Uh, one very recent and one that's from my time here. I'll do the the my time here first. Uh, a particular teammate of mine while we were student athletes at Kenyon, uh, his mom passed away uh, early and unexpectedly. And obviously that was very traumatizing and traumatic for my particular friend and teammate. And I remember uh, my friend really struggling. And one night just couldn't really wrap his head and his heart around his grief. And so he chose to walk from campus to Coach Steen's house, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe two miles, something like that. I mean, it's, it's walkable, but it's not easy. Uh, walk two miles, essentially in the middle of the night to go grieve with someone. And Coach Steen opened his door with, with open arms, invited my teammate and friend in and spent the evening just, just grieving with him and letting him be sad and letting him mourn the loss of his mother. And and that's something that probably no one else on the team other than me and maybe our other roommate knew about, but that's something that, that Coach Steen knew was important to do, but also had demonstrated to the student athletes that that's the type of coach he wanted to be. Like my friend didn't walk there thinking he wasn't gonna be let in. He walked there knowing he was gonna be let in knowing he'd have that space to to grieve that loss and so creating that feeling allowed my friend to have that experience so that's one and then yesterday i was up on campus uh i was i was running but i was up on campus and i ran into him and um sadly we have an alum right now who is who's very sick um who's really struggling with some health issues and we've been in touch with this particular person in, in, in her community to kind of share stories. And Coach Steen was telling me last night how much, how hard it was for him and how this whole weekend he's been kind of racked with grief, thinking about how to share a story or two with this particular alum, alum who's at the end of her life. And to see that kind of compassion now, that 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 ability to feel fully someone else's grief is a big part of who he is too. And I think that that's part of what made him, makes him incredible is his ability to, to I, I, I know I said this over and over again, but to, to be all in on what he's doing. And so when it's coaching an athlete, it's coaching an athlete. When it's grieving with someone, it's grieving with someone. I think that's, that's pretty special. And I think that's something he does better than most anyone I know. Painting an amazing picture. And I think mm -hmm. you know, what you're consistent with about his ability to be present allows him to be good in a lot of different areas because he's just focused in on that area for a time and then another area I mean mm -hmm. to be great with you know the tracking with the big picture ideas with the empathy like all of those different pieces take presence and if you're trying to do them all at once it's not going to be very successful but if you're able to really focus in and do one thing at a time I mean it's way easier said than done it sounds so simple right. but we all kind of have to work at it and obviously he did the work and was mm -hmm. very skilled at it um those are awesome thank you I really do appreciate that kind of perspective um I kind of wanted to end with some quotes and I'm not sure you know sometimes you you read these articles and you might not have been during you know the time that you were there or you know mm -hmm. maybe this wasn't something that he said to everyone but um were there any quotes that you can remember that he was consistent with as far as messaging to the team? Yeah, I, I didn't prep for this, but um, one of the ones he talked a lot about was a, a real champion is someone who brings their best against the best at the best of all possible times. And the idea was context matters. And so it's it's okay. You, you want to be great wherever you can be, but the greatest are the greatest when it matters the most. And so that was a message that he would send to our team. Probably his most 
and this is a really impactful one, his most quoted one would be something to the effect of you have two choices in life. You can either live your life under a threat or for a challenge. And so when things are really getting hard for you, it's about how do you, how do you see that hardness? Do you see it as a threat? Is it threatening your existence? Is it threatening your, your performance? Is it threatening your success? Or is it a challenge? And at the end of the day, that is a uh, perception more than anything else. Uh, I got two more in my head. Uh, another one, these are more for me as an assistant coach. Uh, my first year as an assistant coach, I would be very frustrated by particular people who were not living up to what I thought the ideals of the program were. And so um, perhaps I shouldn't share this, Garrett. Maybe this is to be cut. I'm not sure. But um, he he would talk about uh, focus on the living. And so the idea is that if you get too distracted by the 20% that aren't living up to your standards, you're losing track of the 80% that are doing everything that you have asked them to do. And so for me as a coach, I, I've thought about that over time. How do I focus on the living? Not, and I think what's really important in that phrase, what I've, what I, the importance I've found in that phrase is the word focus. And so that doesn't mean ignore. Uh, we're not saying ignore those who are struggling, but focus on the ones who are doing well. Those are the ones that, that really deserve that attention at that particular time. So I don't know if that's worth sharing. I think that's totally worth sharing because I, as a coach, struggle with that all the time. Like there's the people who aren't coming to practice or the people who, you know, aren't doing the warm up and warm down. And it's probably a minority of the group, but those are the ones that consume me. And we're at a meet. It's not the people who swam best times. It's the people who fell short of their, like you're saying, potential. And I, you know, in less eloquent terms, try to remind myself of the same thing. So I think that's a great one. Thank you. Uh, I would just go back to it's the focus. It's not ignore. It's not ignore. It's not ignore. You're not ignoring the person who shows up late. You're not ignoring the person who doesn't do what you ask them to do, but you're not letting yourself get sidetracked by that. You know, focus your energies on those who are doing it well and doing it right. And the last one is just kind of a, uh, he told me this at some point. I can't remember if it was a student or as a coach, but I remember this one too. But the, the idea is no one can make you feel inferior without your own consent. And I, I think there is something maybe too simplistic about that. But the idea is if you're letting you, if you're letting someone make you feel bad about yourself, part of it is you letting them make you feel that way. And so make sure that you try to have some agency and you have some ownership of that as well, which I, and I've talked to students about this is way, way harder to do than it sounds, but be aware of that too. Be aware that if you're letting letting others impact your way of feeling yourself. Part of that is a choice and you have to be careful about that. So these are other things I'm not sure worth sharing, but I do think about that one sometimes. 100% worth sharing. I think that all of those are still very important today, you know, because it's still the same struggle that student athletes and even coaches can, mm -hmm. uh, can go through um, and probably timeless advice. Um, two more quotes that I want to kind of go mm -hmm. over. Um, cause I did have the one about, uh, the threat versus challenge on here mm -hmm. and the others were awesome, but here's one that I was curious if you could explain or, you know, mm -hmm. also kind of, if you, if you'd heard it at all, uh, find a place within yourself where success and failure don't matter a place where you can engage in battle without compromise. Does that sound familiar? It, it does. Uh, coaching is also a beautiful writer. And um, if you maybe you want to link to this, he did a, a graduation speech here, uh, baccalaureate speech, which is fantastic. Uh, he's a great writer. So that's that's a written quote, not a spoken quote. And um, um, I, I think that it, it, if anything, it speaks to what we talked about is his great skill, that idea of just being present. And so I think that this was this was a quote that was given at sort of the peak of Kenyan swimming dominance. And so he's talking to a group of people here and telling them, just, just be in the race. You know, don't be in it thinking about what we have to do, but just be in it to be present inside of the race. And so it's not about the success or the failure. It's about the competing. It's about the team. It's about the distance. Are you swimming 50 yards? Are you taking a breath? Just be fully invested in where you are. So I think that's, that's probably what he was speaking to in that one. And I think this last one, I did not understand at all when I first read it because it's counter to the um, cliche that, you know, is thrown around. I may have lost the battle, but, you know, the war is far from over. Mm -hmm. um, this was a quote I read that said, not winning the war is not nearly as bad 
as not winning the battles. But like you're talking about, it's about what's right now, not the mm -hmm. big picture that you're worried about overall. It's just this battle right here, trying to do your best within it, I guess. Or it, maybe mm -hmm. you can take that a step further and explain that one. Is is that one that you've heard or that you're familiar I with? Have. Yeah, I think this one also reflects when it was given. So this is, again, at a time of, of great dominance. And so in some ways, winning the war was a foregone conclusion. The Kenyan teams were going to dominate at the NCAAs. And so we're not going to hang our success and hang our season on winning because, quite frankly, we're going to win. We're going to hang our success and hang our season on the, the battles, the individual swims. Are we going to get out there and are you going to move up from lane lane one and score top five? Are you going to make it back when you weren't slated to make it back? Uh, maybe we were projected to win a relay, but can you break a national record, right? And so the idea is ground success in more places than just one. Don't ground it in the battle because the battle in some of those times was, was already won before we even got to the meet. But the idea is if that's the only place we're fixating our our attention, we're losing track of everything else we get to enjoy along the way. Awesome. I really, really appreciate you uh, diving into this, um, giving us insight on what's going on right now. Um, and then, you know, reflecting back on what was one of the most impactful coaches, definitely, undoubtedly in our sport, but I think across all mm -hmm. sports. Um, is there anything else that you want people to know about or even specifically about the reunion or, you know, the Hall of Fame ceremony next month? Is there anything else that you want to add here? Uh, if I'm talking to Kenyan swimming alums, you should come. Uh, it's going to be a big event. We're going to have 300 to 400 alumni there and tons of reunion type events. Uh, these are special. We don't get a chance to do this stuff very often uh, anywhere. And so take advantage of these opportunities to celebrate with your teammates and your friends. Take take advantage of the opportunity to celebrate your history as well. I think that I'm blessed to be here all the time. So I get to relive Kenyan all the time. I get to see people whenever they come back, but we so rarely get to go come back together. This is not like a the college does class year reunions but to do a true team reunion is something that's unusual. And so I'm looking forward to it tremendously and looking forward to sharing it with our team. And I'm also looking forward to being uh, both coach and alum in this event too, and seeing my friends and teammates. Sounds like it's going to be a great event. And as somebody with no connection to Kenyon beyond this conversation, I've thoroughly enjoyed our almost hour where I could keep going. There's a lot of other things that I'm sure we could dive into here, but I won't take up any more of your time other than to say I really appreciated this. I enjoyed the stories. I enjoyed your insight. Um, enjoy the reunion and the celebration and best of luck here in the upcoming season for the Owls. Thank you, Garrett. It's, it was fun for me too. I think that to, to offer one more thought here at the end, I think that we, you and I, and the people that, that we work, we've chosen to engage in something that is both meaningful and meaningless at the same time. And, you know, at the end of the day, how fast someone swims doesn't really matter. But the work we put into swimming fast and building team and building community matter tremendously. And so I'm very thankful for what you do, what Coach Dean has done, what our current team does, because that's where the real value is. The value, the value is trying to do those things as much as it is doing those things. Great stuff. Jess, thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.